It's good to be together with you guys to have another opportunity to praise Jesus our Lord and uh, God our Father and the Spirit who binds us together. If you will turn to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8. At least that's where we're going to be kind of grounding ourselves this morning. Acts 8. I want you to turn to Acts 8 verse 37. Acts 8 verse 37. So, Acts 8, 37, I hope you're there, um, but I imagine there's going to be a few quizzical looks from some of you, because I'm going to guess that about half of you do not have Acts 8, 37 in your Bible. Uh, if you are reading from the King James, the New American Standard, the American Standard, the New King James, or the Holman, you will have it. Uh, if you're reading uh, NIV, ESV, RSV, uh, it's going to be absent. So... This raises a few questions, uh, and for the next 30 minutes or so, here's a Venn diagram of what we're going to be talking about. So I've got two somewhat unrelated questions, uh, and the middle ground is right here uh, on Acts 8.37. We're going to be answering the question, one, why are there verses missing from my Bible, and uh, should I be concerned about that? And then second, we're going to be asking... Um, well, if Acts 8.37 is like our proof text for confession, then what do we do if it's not there? So, with that said, I want to let you know that there are, this is not the only verse that is, is not in your Bible, but you should not be worried because it's okay. See, the, the first time that I learned that there were verses that were not in my Bible, I mean, I was probably like 14 or 15, and I was terrified. I was like, this is a liberal plot to undermine the authority of the Bible. This is, this is bad. And as I got a little bit older, I studied a little bit more, I learned it, it is anything but, okay? The people who make our Bibles are very concerned with God and God's word. And there are some verses, like Acts 8.37, that through careful consideration uh, of the textual evidence, they have come to the conclusion that they were not written, like Acts 8.37 was not written by Luke, and that it was probably added later on, and that it doesn't belong in our Bibles. And there are several verses like that, and I'm going to walk you through them this morning as, as we discuss that. But first, I want to give you guys a brief history of how we got our Bible, okay? So, skipping over the Old Testament... The New Testament was written about Jesus, obviously. Jesus lived about A.D. 30, and uh, a couple decades after he was killed by the Jews and the Romans, uh, people started like writing down his story. And by the end of the first century, pretty much the whole Bible as we have it was completed. And, but the only way we would like 100% fully know what the authors wrote is that we had their original manuscripts, which we don't. But we have people who took very careful, uh, made very careful copies. And we have copies, the very first manuscript fragment we have, it's like the size of a post-it note. It's from like 125-ish. Um, it's like 20 words of John. And um, as we go through the second century, uh, more toward the end, we, get, we start getting more fragments. Uh, more uh, full manuscripts, and by the time we get to, say, 350, we've got several solid, like, full Bibles, effectively. And 
now, in 2021, present day, we have a ton of manuscripts. Like, we can go back, we can look at them, because people made copies of this because it was very important to them. They made copies and copies and copies, but not all copies are made equally, okay? So, generally speaking, earlier ones are better than later ones, and there are certain traditions of copying that are better than others, and so we can tell with, like, startling accuracy what the original text said. I mean, we'll have, you know, like 50 manuscripts and like 35 of them will be exactly the same and then like 15 of them will be like, uh, you know, it's an on instead of an in or like slightly different word order, but like it doesn't, pretty much they're the same. And so we can tell, one, how, how it was originally written pretty well and past that, how it evolved throughout time, the different changes that happened and that's what we're going to be looking at. Because, as I said, we have really good manuscripts. We can tell with like, startling accuracy, like I said, what the gospel writers wrote. I mean, the only way we'd more, be more certain is if we had their original manuscripts, which we don't, but like, we can be pretty sure. And yet, um, we have a lot of advantages that the people who made, let's say, the King James Bible did not have. Okay, so... As I said, we have a lot of manuscripts, but take John, for example. Uh, the four best manuscripts that we have to figure out what the Apostle John wrote were discovered or made public in uh, the first two in the mid-1800s, one of them in the 1950s, and one of them in the 1970s, which means that these are fairly new <laughs> in the history. Like, they're old, like really old and really accurate, but we didn't have them. And so if you go back to, say, the 1500s, just as there was a lot of things we hadn't discovered, a lot of things in textual evidence that they hadn't discovered. And so Erasmus, who made the Greek text that we get the King James Version from, he was working with a lot of inferior manuscripts. Uh, he was working with a Latin version of the Bible. And in some places, he was uh, translating from there. Some cases, it's uh, sort of impacted by social and political things more than like accuracy for the text. And so there are some problems in the King James Bible as a result of that. And because we have the versification from 500 years ago, there are some issues with some of the verses. And as I said, there aren't that many, but I'll show them to you. It's these verses. There's about 20 of them. And with the exception of there's three that have stars, this one Luke, and then these two in Acts, I, we're like as sure as we can be that these don't belong in the Bible. And I'll tell you why. Okay, so as I said, we have really early manuscripts they didn't have when they were preparing the King James Bible. And these are, they're super consistent with each other. There is a, a, we can be as sure as we can be that these, these texts are accurate. And none of them, none of the four best have any of these texts except for the ones that have stars on them, which we will discuss in a little bit. And so if our earliest, best manuscripts don't have them, then we can be fairly certain that they were added in later on. And you should say, oh, well, you might say, oh, this is concerning. Like, uh, should I be worried about this? But no, I'm, whether we keep any of these verses or not, does, and I will show you this, you will see, doesn't significantly change anything about our theology, anything about what we believe about God. But I'm going to show them to you because this can be concerning. This is like you know, rug out from under my feet kind of thing. Like 20 verses, that seems like a lot. But I assure you, it's okay. So 
The biggest class of omitted verses that we have is going to be this class of duplicates. Okay, so for example, let's look at Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, um, this is from the New American Standard. So he said to them, beware of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it, will be, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And while they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. So this is from, you know, when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And there's that kid, and the, the dad comes to him, and he's like, hey, uh, I tried to get your disciples to cast out the demon, but they couldn't. And Jesus uh, rebukes them, and eventually he, he casts out the demon. And they say, uh, in Mark's account, why could we not cast it out? And he says, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, like I said, like 99.9% sure, Matthew didn't actually say this because it's not in any of his original manuscripts. It is in Mark. And probably what happened is that some guy along the way was reading this story, was copying it, and either A, he was remembering the story in Mark and thought, oh, you know, I should add this in for detail uh, so that they can understand. Or B, he remembered the story from Mark and he thought, oh, um, the scribe before me forgot to add this in. Let me, let me make sure that that gets in there. Or he was, you know, had the story in mind from Mark and he was like, oh, uh, and just kind of like went on autopilot and just wrote this extra verse in there. But like I said, this doesn't change much, okay? Because this is already in our Bibles. And so uh, whether we keep it or not doesn't make a whole lot of difference. And that's like half of them, okay? So the second class, very similar. There are verses like this. Uh, as you'll see, uh, Mark 9, 48 says, Their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. He's talking about hell. And in, this is, again, the New American Standard. Uh, where it talks about the unquenchable fire and be cast into hell, this verse gets copied up. And this happens a handful of times, but this is, again, just a copy from later on. Somehow a scribe put it in there. And this accounts for another four of them. So, all right, we're okay so far. Just, just duplicates. Nothing changes. Here we get a little bit more interesting. We've got two more classes that we need to talk about of omitted verses. Uh, and these are a little bit more significant in terms of adding or changing things, but not really. Okay, so the first one uh, is marginal notes. And this is the one that when I first discovered it, it was just like, Phew. I was like, ah, what's going on here? Uh, this is from John chapter 5. This is the, the paralytic man, and uh, he's, by the, or not, uh, he's, he's by the pool, and he wants Jesus to put him in the pool so that he can get healed. It says... In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, uh, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons in the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then, uh, yeah, whoever then first, after the stirring up the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he'd been afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for about 38 years. So we have this, this text, and again, this insertion is not in the best manuscripts that we have. Not in the earliest manuscripts, it's in some of the later ones. And uh, fun fact about this one, it seems to have come in two parts. First, the waiting for the moving of the waters, and then the second part, this whole thing about an angel coming down. And So it helps to explain something later on. It was probably that a scribe along the way wrote this in the margin because it's kind of weird that there's just a guy waiting for the stirring of the waters, and he thought, you know what, people are going to be confused by this. Let me make a little margin note, like you have margin notes in your Bible. But at some point, 
it got pulled into the text by a scribe. And this happened a few times. Another really famous example of this is in uh, 1 John 5. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father and the Word and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Uh, this is not even in the New American Standard. It's in the King James and the New King James. This is the one I said was included for like political, social reasons. As sure as we can be, this does not belong in the Bible. But it is. It explains, because it's kind of weird. I mean, John is kind of famous for his cryptic sayings. There are three that bear witness, the spirit, the water, and the blood. What does that mean? And so some scribe along the way, he was like, you know what? People are going to be confused by this. Let me put a little margin note in here so I can explain to them this is about the Trinity. And uh, they got pulled into the text, but it doesn't belong there. This is not inspired. This is the scribe that came along and tried to explain the text. And so we've got, again, three more that uh, fall into that category. John 5, Acts 8, which is the one that we're discussing here. I'm put in that category. And uh, 1 John 5. And we'll come back and we'll talk about Acts 8 uh, more in a minute. The final category of uh, texts that don't belong in the Bible, but how they got there, is... um, People who felt that there was an important um, part of the story that needed to be completed. So, for example, here is uh, Acts 15. So, this is um, the, the council at Jerusalem, and Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with lengthy messages. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. Um, This is, uh, they were wondering, you know, what happened to Silas here? And so they thought, you know, it's important. We should include something about Silas here. Um, Again, this is probably a textual note, uh, uh, a scribal note that got pulled into the text. But it kind of finishes off the story. And there are a few that are like that, uh, four of them. And as I said, these three, let me go back so you can see them. These three that have stars... A little bit dubious. Okay, so I said all of these, with the exception of the starred ones, are not in our four best texts. Um, these two are in of the, the four codices that we have, which are like the whole Bible ones. These are in the fourth best of them, these two with the star. And so it's like, okay, maybe, maybe they will. Like there's some scribal debate about them. There's no, there's no debate about any of the other ones. They were like, these don't belong in here. But these are like, okay, maybe. Like you make a case for it. John, Luke 22 is the one you can make the very best case for because it is not in three of the, of the four best codices, but it's in the best one. So it's like, okay, well, it's, it's curious whether it belongs or not, but I'll show it to you. This, this one we might get a little bit of concern about, all right, because this is the text where it talks about Jesus in the garden he knelt down and he was earnestly sweating great drops of blood falling on the ground. Like, it's a great picture. Does it belong in the text? It's, it's debatable, okay? But again, I, w- I want to ask you, the same thing I've asked about all of these. Does it really change what we know about God or theology? No, it, it doesn't really. Now, whether Jesus sweat drops of blood is an interesting question uh, and uh, one that I would love to know. And I think as with the rest of these, not much debate. That one, like I said, further debate. I'm curious to see how that goes. But again, it, it doesn't change much. None of these really dramatically change anything. Except for these, which again, aren't that significant. But they're going to require their own sort of discussion. So 
we'll just pause here for a moment. As I said, we have really good manuscripts. We, we know with as much certainty as I think is like possible at this point, know what the original people who wrote the Bible wrote. And it can be scary to be like, look, there are verses in here that, that don't belong. But as I said, this is not some liberal conspiracy. This is as, as conservative as you can be, that I want to know what the Bible says. What did they write? And that's what we're trying to understand. And by examining scribal stuff, and of course, if you've got questions, come to me. I would love to answer them. Uh, we, could, we could talk more about this. But it, it really, I promise you it's okay. And that this is going to, having this kind of discussion about the text helps us to understand what it is that the gospel writers are trying to say. Because even if these don't change a whole lot, they do change a little bit of the narrative structure. Uh, of you know, the flow of the text. And so if we can get as close to what the original writers wrote, then that's going to help us understand as best we can what the Bible is trying to teach us and to follow their flows. And so, as I said, very little of this. This, this changes basically nothing. But I want to talk about their, their three. Acts 8 is the, the third in this list. But these two require their own sort of discussion. Uh, and so if you will turn with me to Mark chapter 16. I put this in the list of omitted verses because it has the same poor textual support as all the other ones, but it is, in fact, in our Bibles. So let's talk about this. So Mark 16, the last 12 verses, um, is not in any of our best manuscripts. And the two best ones, which are called Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus, no, and uh, the other ones, uh, I've forgotten. But anyway, to the two best ones. Um, it's, it's absent, just completely absent in one of them. It just skips, goes straight to Luke. The other one, it, uh, well, there's a big blank space here. As if maybe there was an ending and now there's not. And we don't know what happened to it. Uh, there are not big blank spaces like this in any of the other ones. Uh, so big question mark about what the significance of that is. But as I said, this ending is not in any of the original, uh, the, the, most, the best manuscripts that we have. And so we're fairly certain Mark did not write this. And that leaves us with a few questions, okay? Three options effectively. Uh, either Mark wrote it, which like I said, no one thinks, uh, nor should you. Uh, and then we got two other options. Either... Uh, God inspired someone else to write the ending to Mark because the original ending of Mark got lost. Or there is no original ending to Mark because it ended in verse 8, which is like kind of a baffling sort of suggestion, but that seems to be how things are, are, are going these days. That seems to be what people think. Uh, depends on whether you are more in support of the little Aleph manuscript or the B. Either way, um, again, this doesn't change a whole lot. It, it does sort of change the way that Mark ends, and that, that is its own sort of significance. And it does, I will admit, leave us without Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned, which is kind of a significant proof text for us, but it doesn't need to be. Like, we got Acts 2.38. We've got a bunch of other texts that say the same thing. Having this verse or not having it doesn't change a whole lot. And plus, 
We, uh, we lose the, the whole drinking poison text, which is like, could they drink poison? I don't know. Uh, but people today should not be drinking poison. So <laughs> in any case, we have this ending of, of Mark. Uh, and who you, depends on who you ask, depends on whether they think it's inspired or not. But either way, very few people think that Mark actually wrote this. And it doesn't have the textual support. And so I think it's best to kind of leave it alone. Um, I, I, I don't know what to do with it, but I know that it has the same poor textual support as the other 20 of these. And so I think it's probably best for us to use the text that we know we can trust, to use the text that we know are in all of the manuscripts that are like, they're there. This one, big question mark. And if we're trying to convert people, we want to you know, decrease the amount of question marks. And so if we can use other verses to say the same thing that we would say as Mark 6, 16, 16, then I would say that that's something we should do. So that's Mark 16. Um, the other one is John 7, or John 8, really. Uh, and if you'll turn over there, this is another one that has the same poor textual support, but it's in our Bibles because it's such a great story. I mean, this is the woman caught in adultery. Jesus like, gets down, and he, he writes on the ground, and he says, you, know, you without sin cast the first stone. And it's, a, it's an amazing story. And uh, I, was, I was talking with Jacob about this a while ago, and he's like, Brent, I'm... I'm kind of inclined, and I, I think I am too, to say, I, this seems like something Jesus would do. Uh, now, again, has the same poor textual support. John didn't write it, uh, and the, 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 the main four don't have it. Even the ones that do have it, it's all over the place. This text is not authentic to John. But it's a great story, and it's a great story for the, the world at large. But again... We have plenty of places where Jesus is merciful. We have lots of places where Jesus does something kind of odd to throw the Pharisees off their feet. And so, again, this is a cool text. And I uh, am sort of sad that it, it doesn't have the textual support that I, you know, the other, the, like the, the, the Bible has in general. But we don't gain or lose very much with this text. And so, again, I think it's, it's a cool one. But I think that it's maybe best to steer clear of it as we're trying to discuss and convert people because, again, uh, if we can shorten the amount of question marks, that's, that's a good thing. And that then leads us, finally, to where we began, which is Acts 8. So Acts 8, once again, uh, very little textual support for this reading. It probably, as I have it highlighted in green, um, was introduced to the text as a footnote because they were like, well, what did he confess? And this is like the, I guess, standard early church confession. This is an early text. Uh, we, it gets introduced to the text fairly early, but it's not in any of the best manuscripts, so we know that it didn't get introduced at the beginning. It's probably not written by Luke. Um, and it also is sort of narrative as well. So it has some of those things going for it, but what, I, what it does not have going for it is clarifying the biblical doctrine on confession. And that is where I would like to spend the last few minutes here. What do we do about confession? Okay, because I grew up with this being the proof text about confession. You got your five-finger plan, and when you get to confession, you go to Acts 8.37. And so what do we do? So this text has the confession being, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, which is, of course, a true thing that we believe and confess and live with our lives. But I don't think it's the clearest confession. And I think if we look at the other texts about confession in the Bible, 
that we might get a little bit of a clearer image, and uh, we can harness something devotional from this sort of uh, odd track we've been going on this morning. So if you will turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, this is one of the two verses we'll be looking at uh, concerning confession. In Romans 10, we read, uh, let's see, let's start in verse 8. Paul says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So we've got this verse, uh, which is wrangled all about by uh, various Calvinists. But what we get from this is that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that, he, uh, that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. The confession here is not Jesus is the Son of God, but that Jesus is Lord. And you might think, well, there's not a whole lot of distinction there, but I actually think that there is. Of course, Jesus is both the Son of God and the Lord. But the Son of God is a statement about like, his quality, his origin. But his lordship is a statement about our relationship to him. He is the Son of God, tells us about him, but he is Lord, means that I need to obey him. Turn with me also to 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, we get uh, the other text that kind of shines a light on what our confession ought to be. So in 1 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, let's start in verse 12. Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says two times, talking about this good confession. He says, remember when you made the good confession, it's the same one that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate. And this makes it really easy for us because uh, besides John, which is probably after Timothy, Jesus doesn't say a lot before Pontius Pilate. In fact, it's really just one thing. Pontius Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, it is as you say. And so Jesus' one confession before Pontius Pilate is about his kingship, his lordship, his dominion. And so as we ask ourselves, what is the good confession? What is the confession that we should be making? What is step four of the five-finger plan? I think... Having Acts 8.37 actually clouds things a little bit because otherwise we get this clear picture that the confession is that Jesus is Lord. And if we go through life with that as our focus, if that as our guiding light, then we're going to have a lot more clarity about our goal. Because as I said, Jesus is Lord tells us what our relationship is to God. It tells us what our relationship is to Jesus, that he rose from the dead, and that he is sitting at the right hand of God, reigning with all things put under his feet. And that includes us. And so he has rules. He has laws. He has a pattern that he has set. And that's what we are supposed to follow. 
And that is as we, uh, you know, begin the, as we are about to be baptized and we, we go into the waters to die to our old self and to, to raise with Christ. This idea that I am giving up my freedom, that I am giving over dominion and mastery of my life to Jesus, that makes so much more sense as the confession. And if that is the single biblical witness about what the confession is, then that helps us as we are teaching people, as we're trying to show them what is confession, because uh, there are big question marks around it. Uh, It's kind of um, ethereal sometimes. when we uh, It's hard to get a grasp on. But I think if we show them these texts, these two, it's pretty clear. Jesus is Lord, and that means I have to obey him. That means he is in control of my life. That means I'm, I'm giving up my power. And of course, Jesus being the Son of God has the same effect, but it's not as direct. And so I hope that this has been helpful for you. I know it's kind of odd. And again, I, if you have questions, please come to me. I, I take the text very seriously. I, I really care about what God tried to reveal to us. And if I've given any other impression this morning, I, I hope that you will come and we can talk about it and I can, can clarify that. The Bible is amazing. Our God, our Lord, who we you know, swear dominion, our, the dominion of our life over to, he is awesome. And he has taken care of his word so that we have it today as we ought to. And this is amazing because, as I said, there were some, you know, corruptions. But none of them are significant. None of them change anything. And I think that's amazing. I think that speaks to the power of God. That even when people made errors, it doesn't change anything about what we know about God, about what we know about salvation. That God has been taking care of us, taking care of his word all along. And he is powerful. He is good, and we should swear our allegiance to him. I hope that you will think on these things, think on the lordship of Jesus as we go throughout this week. Thank you so much for your kind attention.